Blog Talk Radio. Good evening and blessings and welcome to another installment of The Gist of Freedom is Faith. This show is produced by acclaimed historian, educator, and author, Leslie Gist, and serves as our weekly live online discussion to celebrate the African-American experience by honoring all the people, past and present, black and white, who, with faith and focus, are preserving our rich history through literature, the arts, the skilled trades, and the humanities. We thank you for joining us tonight, and we'd love you to be a part of tonight's discussion by calling in with your comments or questions to 347-324-5552. They came from different lands, all facing an uncertain future. English and Ashanti. Mendy in Portuguese. German and Igbo, Fanti and Spaniard, French and Angolan, some seeking adventure or riches or religious freedom. Others were captives, bartered and sold like cattle. Together they would build a nation and struggle over the very meaning of freedom and create the America we have inherited in 09. 500 settlers lived in the Jamestown colony. By the spring of 1610, only 60 were left alive. In 1619, a year before the pilgrims landed at Plymouth Rock, a mystery ship appeared out of a violent storm off the Virginia coast. No one recorded the ship's name, but somewhere on the high seas, She had robbed a Spanish vessel of a cargo of Africans. In search of supplies, she traded the Africans for food. They had been baptized and given Christian names. As Christians, they could not be enslaved for life under English law. Like most Europeans in the colony, They were purchased to work as servants for a limited number of years. They were bound to a master by an indenture form, a contract that defined length of service and the conditions of servitude. Builders initially intended to rely almost exclusively on white indentured servants as a labor force to cultivate the crops, that were being grown in Virginia, principally tobacco. 1609, 500 settlers lived in the Jamestown colony. By the spring of 1610, only 60 were left alive. The English definition of who could be enslaved began to shift from non-Christian to non-white. Here's an individual that arrives as one of the first African-Americans in the history of what became the United States. He does what almost no one in early Virginia managed to do, and that is live. Everyone that's dying of disease, violence, and since he's lucky. He had been brought to the colony the year before to work tobacco along the James River. His name appeared in the 1625 Virginia census as Antonio a Negro. 
He was listed as a servant. He comes to Virginia, finds a society that is just developing. He's getting in on the ground floor, as it, as it were. Um, I don't know if he was able to immediately envision that there would be opportunities for him here that uh, weren't available elsewhere. I don't know that anyone could have foretold that. When Antonio arrived, the laws of Virginia did not as yet define racial slavery. They governed only the status of servants. At some point, Antonio changed his name to Anthony Johnson and married a Negro servant named Mary from a neighboring plantation. She bore him four children. By 1640, it is clear Anthony and Mary were no longer servants. They had acquired their own modest estate on Virginia's eastern shore. As Johnson prospered, as he obtained land and cattle, he also acquired dependent laborers. What made all of this society go was property. Your identity in the society was determined rather obviously by the amount of land, the amount of labor that you own. Anthony Johnson was enjoying privileges belonging to a free Englishman. He claimed five workers as head rights and expanded his property to 250 acres along the Pongateague Creek. At least some of his workers were white. By 1650, Anthony was one of 400 black people in Virginia out of a population of almost 19,000 settlers. In Northampton County, where Johnson lived, Nearly 20 African men and women were free, and 13 owned their own homes. As Anthony Johnson is accumulating property, it seems as though his situation is secure. You get a sense of this individual, this black man, being treated like any white planter, and his wife and daughters being treated like the wife of a planter. At an early moment, when men and women were sorting themselves out, when the rules, the etiquette of race, labor, were not so clear. At this moment, in one county, in Virginia, it was not foreordained that race relations would become what they did become. the year Anthony Johnson purchased his first piece of land, three servants had run away from a Virginia plantation and headed for Maryland. Captured and returned to their owner, they were tried for breaking their contract. The said three servants shall receive the punishment of whipping and have 30 stripes apiece. One called Victor, a Dutchman, the other a Scotchman called James Gregory, shall first serve out their times according to their indentures and one whole year apiece after and after that to serve the colony for three whole years apiece the third being a negro named john punch shall serve his said master or his assigns for the time of his natural life jamestown court recorder the time of his natural life according to all the legal records that survived no white servant in America ever received such a sentence. 
So what begins to happen in the 1640s is that those who are controlling the Virginia colony say to themselves, the fluidity that we've seen in the past, the fluidity that has allowed an Anthony Johnson to serve less than a life term, to acquire his own piece of ground, to develop a free status, is not something that we want to project as going further in the future. We want to close down that opportunity. We want to begin to show some distinction. All servants imported and brought into this country who are not Christian in their native land shall be counted and be slaves. So you listen to the Gist of Freedom. Um, I am Leslie Gist. We are trying to get you um, uh, some recordings from a few documentaries. Please sit tight as we handle these technical difficulties. Apologize. I hope you've enjoyed the programming. Uh, we always appreciate uh, any feedback. Uh, By the 1820s, the international slave trade had been prohibited by the U.S. and most of the European nations. Because it was so profitable, however, it continued almost unabated despite the new laws. Along the coasts of Africa and the Americas, British and U.S. ships patrolled for illegal slave traders. The slave traders were aware of the patrols. A ship found breaking the slave ban treaty would be seized. The punishment for the crew would be death. The cargo on this voyage was human beings. 53 Africans, including four children, brutally abducted from their homelands, were now chained together in the hold of the ship. The name of this schooner was La Amistad, 
One of the shackled men refused to be held down. His given name was Singbei Pei, but the men who bought him as a slave called him Joseph Singkei. Singkei's daring and strength rallied the captive Africans. On a moonless night, as the schooner was anchored offshore, the Africans seized control of La Amistad in a bloody revolt. These innocent men and children, unable to communicate, faced an almost impossible struggle in a strange land. A land itself in turmoil over an issue the Africans came to represent, slavery and the freedom of all human beings. In the Americas, the Europeans initially attempted to enslave the native peoples, the people they called Indians. The North American natives were vulnerable to many diseases the Europeans carried. Hearing of these problems, the Catholic Church moved to prohibit the enslavement of the indigenous American people. Pressured by the Church and for their own economic reasons, Spain and Portugal formally agreed to end the enslavement of Native Americans. This very same treaty targeted Africans for slavery in the New World. The national slave trade was, of course, uh, one of the most lucrative commercial ventures. 15% of all Africans kidnapped would become slaves in the United States. Most of the Africans that began to be brought in were brought in from ag large agricultural settled societies. In fact, for instance, in places like South Carolina, they began to import Africans from particular places because they brought with them a knowledge of rice agriculture. Most of the Africans shackled together on the Amistad were Mindy. Hundreds of Africans were herded onto ships, shackled together two by two. Middle Passage has become synonymous with the unspeakable, inhumane treatment of captive Africans on the transatlantic voyages. Sinkei survived the Middle Passage on a Portuguese slaver named the Tecora. The building of slave ships was a thriving industry and the ships were built to accommodate as many people as possible. Most decks were about four feet high, which only allowed a person to squat. On one British ship, the Brooks, a specific space was allowed for each person. Men, for instance, were granted a space six feet long, 16 inches wide, and only two feet seven inches high. By law, in 1788, the Brooks was restricted to sail with only 454 Africans in the decks below. These transatlantic voyages, sometimes three to four months long, traveled along the equator. This produced copious perspiration so that the air soon became unfit for respiration from a variety of loathsome smells and brought on a sickness among the slaves of which many died. Ulada Equiano, former slave. The holes were infested with lice, fleas, and rats. Often in mid-passage, crews discovered a shortage of provisions. To ensure enough food for the rest of the voyage, the crew would simply throw some of the Africans overboard. Sharks closely followed the ships. By the 1820s, the international slave trade had been prohibited by the U.S. and most of the European nations. Because it was so profitable, however, it continued almost unabated despite the new laws.
Along the coasts of Africa and the Americas, British and U.S. ships patrolled for illegal slave traders. The slave traders were aware of the patrols. A ship found breaking the slave ban treaty would be seized. The punishment for the crew would be death. Done to prevent identification of illegal cargo slaves um, by uh, one, either preventing the boarding of the ship or two, uh, getting rid of the cargo. And so a lot of these ships were fitted so that their hulls would open up. And if one of the ships was about to be boarded, the cargo, uh, human beings, would be dumped into the, into the ocean uh, in order to prevent uh, their detection. The price of each man was $450. After completing his middle passage on the Tekora, Sinke was hustled off the ships with the other Africans and locked into a holding pen along the Havana Harbor. The captives were fattened up, cleaned, and marched to the slave market in Havana. We thought by this we should be eaten by these ugly men. Sinke worried about their fate. Unbeknownst to their captors, the Africans decided to establish a leader to organize their escape. They had voted and Sinke was chosen. He decided to act. Finding a loose nail, he used it to pick the lock on his chains. Once free, Sinke immediately released his friend Grabol. Believing they would die anyway, the two men decided to die fighting for their freedom. The Amistad is not, you know, abnormal. That is that it's part of a long continuum, a long tradition of resistance. Many slave ships carried insurance against loss from death and disease during the Middle Passage. Insurance covering revolts and rebellions on the ships was also an option. Revolt insurance was a major part of the insurance industry. Lloyds of London, for instance, was a major participant in insuring slave voyages, and it's one of the ways that it built itself up as a major insurance company. The judge decided to wait until the next meeting of the U.S. Circuit Court in Hartford to bring the matter to trial. Then he would decide and rule if the blacks should stand trial for mutiny and murder. Two days after the Amistad reached New London, Judge Andrew T. Judson conducted a hearing on the Washington to determine the Amistad's status. Judge Judson had a reputation among some as a racist. A few years earlier, he led the fight against a white teacher in Canterbury, Connecticut, who opened a school for freed black girls. Present during the hearing on the U.S. Washington was Dwight P. Jaynes, an abolitionist from New London. He overheard Ruiz and Montez admit the captives were recent arrivals from Africa and realized that slave trading laws had been broken. He quickly wrote a letter to Roger Sherman Baldwin, a noted attorney and abolitionist. I take the liberty to write to you on a subject which I think should deeply interest the benevolent. You have seen the account of the schooner brought in here with the Negroes on board. They are to be tried for murder on the 17th of next month. It seems clear that the schooner was engaged in an unlawful business, and the blacks had a perfect right to get their liberty by killing the crew and taking possession of the vessel. Dwight P. Jaynes, Connecticut abolitionist. Jaynes sent a copy of the letter to Joshua Levitt, a New York abolitionist and editor of The Emancipator, the official paper of the American Anti-Slavery Society. 
Levitt, in turn, showed the letter to Louis Tappan, a wealthy New York City silk merchant and devoted abolitionist. They called a meeting in New York City of abolitionist leaders about what we can do to help these people. The meeting named an Amstag committee composed of Joshua Levitt, Simeon S. Jocelyn, and Louis Tappan. Within two days, they were printing flowers and asking for money, donations, for the defense of these Africans. Several friends of human rights have met to consult upon the case of these unfortunate men. All the necessary means to secure the rights of the accused. It is intended to employ three legal gentlemen of distinguished abilities and to incur other needful expenses. The undersigned make this appeal to the Friends of Humanity to contribute for the above objects. The Amistad Committee. By 1839, the fight to end slavery was a serious movement. If any man at this day sincerely believes that a proper division of local from federal authority or any part of the Constitution forbids the federal government to control as to slavery in the federal territories, he is right to say so and to enforce his position by all truthful evidence and fair argument which he can. But he has no right to mislead others who have less access to history and less leisure to study it into the false belief that our fathers who framed the government under which we live were of the same opinion, thus substituting falsehood and deception for the truthful evidence and the fair argument. As reported in the New York Times, Senator Douglas said, Our fathers, when they framed the government under which we live, understood this question just as well and even better than we do now. I fully endorse this. And I adopt it as a text for this discourse. I so adopt it because it furnishes a precise and an agreed starting point for a discussion. It simply leaves the inquiry. What was the understanding those fathers had of the question mentioned? What is the frame of government under which we live? The answer must be the Constitution of the United States. That Constitution consists of the original framed in 1787 and under which the present government first went into operation and 12 subsequently framed amendments the first 10 of which were framed in 1789 who were our fathers that framed the constitution i suppose the 39 who signed the original instrument may be fairly called our fathers who framed that part of the present government it is almost exactly true to say they framed it, and it is altogether true to say they fairly represented the opinion and sentiment of the whole nation at that time. The sum of the whole is 
that of our 39 fathers who framed the original Constitution, 21, a clear majority of the whole, certainly understood that no proper division of local from federal authority nor any part of the Constitution forbade the federal government to control slavery in the federal territories. Among that 16 were several of the most noted anti-slavery men of those times. Dr. Franklin, Alexander Hamilton, and Governor Morris. While there was not one now known to have been otherwise, unless it be John Rutledge of South Carolina. Let us now inquire whether the 39, or any of them, ever acted upon this question. And if they did, how they acted upon it. How they expressed that better understanding. In 1784, three years before the Constitution, the United States then owning the Northwestern Territory and no other, the Congress of the Confederation had before them the question of prohibiting slavery in that territory. And four of the 39 who afterward framed the Constitution were in that Congress and voted on that question. Of these, Roger Sherman, Thomas Mifflin, and Hugh Williamson voted for the prohibition, thus showing that in their understanding, no line dividing local from federal authority nor anything else properly forpaid the federal government to control as to slavery in federal territory. Such unquestionably was the understanding of our fathers who framed the original Constitution, and the text affirms that they understood the question better than we. But so far, I have been considering the understanding of the question manifested by the framers of the original Constitution. In and by the original instrument, a mode was provided for amending it. And as I have already stated, the present frame of the government under which we live consists of that original and 12 amendatory articles framed and adopted since. Those who now insist that federal control of slavery in federal territories violates the Constitution point us to the provisions which they suppose it thus violates. And as I understand, they all fix upon provisions in these amendatory articles and not in the original instrument. The Supreme Court, in the Dred Scott case, plant themselves upon the Fifth Amendment, which provides that no person shall be deprived of life, liberty, or property without due process of law. While Senator Douglas and his peculiar adherents <laughs> plant themselves upon the Tenth Amendment, providing that the powers not delegated to the United States by the Constitution are reserved to the states, respectively, or to the people. Now, it so happens that these amendments were framed 
by the first Congress which sat under the Constitution. The identical Congress which passed the act already mentioned, enforcing the prohibition of slavery in the Northwestern Territory. Not only was it the same Congress, but they were the identical same individual men who at the same session and at the same time within the session had under consideration and in progress toward maturity these constitutional amendments and this act prohibiting slavery in all the territory the nation then owned. The constitutional amendments were introduced before and passed after the act enforcing the Ordinance of 87. So that during the whole pendency of the act to enforce the ordinance, the constitutional amendments were also pending. The 76 members of that Congress, including 16 framers of the original Constitution, as before stated, were preeminently our fathers who framed that part of the government under which we live, which is now claimed as forbidding the federal government to control slavery in the federal territories. Is it not a little presumptuous in anyone at this day to affirm that the two things which that Congress deliberately framed and carried to maturity at the same time are absolutely inconsistent with each other? And does not such affirmation become impudently absurd when coupled with the other affirmation from the same mouth that those who did the two things alleged to be inconsistent understood whether they really were inconsistent, inconsistent better than we? Better than he who affirms that they are inconsistent. <laughs> it is surely safe to assume that the 39 framers of the original Constitution and the 76 members of the Congress which framed the amendments thereto, taken together, do certainly include those who may be fairly called our fathers who framed the government under which we live. I defy any man to show that any one of them ever in his whole life, declared that in his understanding any proper division of local from federal authority or any part of the Constitution forbade the federal government to control as to slavery in the federal territories.